Hello, and welcome to the podcast that helps you win the race Christ has marked out for you. At the core of masculinity is helping those around us flourish, that is, reach their fullest potential. That is what Adam was placed in the garden to do. Today begins a three-week series about helping our daughters and granddaughters flourish. For the first three weeks of May, our topic is Raising Godly, Confident Daughters and Granddaughters. This episode explains how to help them develop a biblical understanding, sometimes called a biblical worldview, of womanhood. Helping her to build this perspective is absolutely vital for her to build confidence in the way she was created and, if called to be a wife, have a marriage that honors Christ. Thanks for joining us today for Season 1, Episode 26 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Last month's series entitled Stable Leadership in Uncertain Times ended by starting to look at the armor we must put on for spiritual battle. Since this podcast tries to help us stay focused on our mission, we will return to spiritual warfare frequently, so we will finish examining the armor of God at a future date. Today's episode is about shedding any false stereotypes and helping our ladies build a biblical worldview about gender, becoming godly, confident women who understand and celebrate their femininity. We want them to confidently be able to answer the question, what does it mean that God created them female? Although daughters will fight tooth and nail as they should to defend the truth that girls are equal to boys, deep down, those who are healthy don't want to be like boys. They want to be what they were designed to be, women. They recognize intuitively that gender differences are not superficial, but deeply connected to their sense of identity. Theologian Paul Jewett reminds us, sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depth. It conditions every facet of one's life as a person. As the self is always aware of itself as an I, so this I is always aware of itself as himself or herself. Our self-knowledge is indissolubly bound not simply with our human being, but with our sexual being. Our wives, daughters, and granddaughters need us to affirm God's creation design of them. Beyond that, in a world where they continually interact with those who espouse other worldviews, be they feminists, traditionalists, egalitarianists, or LGBTQ advocates, we need to help our female loved ones understand, celebrate, and winsomely articulate the biblical worldview of womanhood. Before we look at the biblical view of gender, though, it's important to identify two mistakes to avoid in helping another develop a biblical worldview. The first mistake to avoid is implying that their generation, the one we're speaking to, that is modern secular culture, represents the evil world to which Christians must not conform. Demonizing modern culture in general because many of its worldviews are unbiblical profoundly misunderstands the biblical view of culture. Because all humans are assigned the creation task to build culture, and all humans are made in God's image, there is much in modern secular culture that Christians should affirm. Besides farmers, truckers, and grocers whose work is used by God to provide our daily bread, art and music celebrate God's creation 
and technology finds new ways to make life better. The secular world is also quite capable of identifying injustice and opposing it, even sometimes before Christians do. It is true that William Wilberforce, who labored 24 years to abolish slavery in Britain, and many of his followers were Christians. So were Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, and many of her followers. But it is equally true that many non-Christians opposed the evil of chattel slavery before many Bible-believing Christians did. In our day, feminists, who sadly are mistaken in their egalitarian approach to marriage, have rightly seen the injustice of closing doors of opportunity to women, and sounded the alarm about Christian women allowing themselves to be beaten by their husbands because of their mistaken understanding of the biblical teaching to be submissive to their husbands. Feminists have also identified the hurtful way that churches almost always link femininity to marriage and the family, unfairly causing single women to feel like second-class citizens. Although my denomination believes leadership responsibility in the home and church family is assigned to men, the culture's focus on the injustice of denying women the opportunity to use their gifts is fomenting a welcome re-examination, in my view, of some of our traditions. Some would argue that this is a slippery slope, but the church must always examine its practices to see if they are based on scripture or tradition. A biblical worldview makes us unafraid to recognize truth, even though it is proclaimed by fallen worldviews. Instead, a biblical worldview recognizes the ring of truth in the injustices that others point out and the validity of their contribution to the culture as those made in the image of God. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, explains how she learned this lesson at Labrie in Switzerland. She writes, I returned to Labrie and discovered how liberating a worldview approach can be. There is no need to avoid the secular world and hide out behind an evangelical subculture. Instead, Christians can appreciate works of art and culture as products of human creativity, expressing the image of God. On the other hand, there is no danger of being naive or uncritical about false and dangerous messages embedded in secular culture, because a worldview gives the conceptual tools needed to analyze and critique them. The second way to fail when helping a daughter embrace a biblical worldview is to critique another's unbiblical worldview without a heart of compassion for those misled by it. Piercy points to the heart of her mentor, Frances Schaefer. She writes, when expressing the pessimism and nihilism, which means belief that life is meaningless, expressed in so many movies, paintings, and popular songs, Schaefer demonstrated profound empathy for those actually living in such despair. These works of art are expressions of men who are struggling with their appalling lostness, he wrote. Dare we laugh at such things? Dare we feel superior when we view their tortured expressions in art? The men and women who produce these things are dying while they live. Yet where is our compassion for them? As we seek a biblical worldview of gender, 
we do it with sorrow in our hearts for human sin, which has corrupted God's design of humans as male and female. The Bible has been used as a weapon both to justify oppression and to justify rebellion. So let's turn to a careful examination of the Bible's teaching about gender so that we are as equipped as possible to winsomely guide our loved ones into spiritual health. The first mention of gender in the Bible occurs with the very first mention of human beings. Genesis 1.27, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This means that our femaleness or maleness is not incidental to our identity, but constitutes our very essence. Kathy Keller, co-author with Tim of The Meaning of Marriage, writes, Every cell in our body is stamped as XX or XY. This means that I cannot understand myself if I ignore the way God designed me or if I despise the gifts he may have given to help me fulfill my calling. If the postmodern view that gender is wholly a social construct were true, then we could follow whatever path seemed good to us. If our gender is at the heart of our nature, however, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. The biblical account shows that Adam and Eve were created with absolute equality. Both are made in the image of God, equally being given the mandate to exercise dominion over the earth. Men and women together in harmony with one another must carry out God's mandate to build civilization and culture. Immediately after making us male and female, God tells us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here, as his image bearers, we are to continue God's action of creating. But obviously, this calling to create human life is something we can only carry out together. Neither sex has all that is needed. Only in complementary union can we do it. These verses describe the physical reality that points to their total complementarity, that they have been designed to fit together perfectly. Genesis 2 reveals more about Adam and Eve's complementarity. When God sees Adam alone, a male without a female, to complete him, God says it is not good. The aloneness of Adam is the first thing in the universe that God finds imperfect. No existing animal could complete Adam, so we read, I will make him a helper fit for him. In English, the word helper sounds demeaning, like a low-wage earner who sweeps the floors. The Hebrew, however, has no such negative connotation. The word translated helper is ezer, which cannot imply inferiority since God himself is called our ezer. The concept is to supply strength that is lacking. Ezer could be translated suitable helper, necessary ally, or strong assistant. Although many of the interactions between male and female presume the context of marriage, I believe that this revelation of God's purpose for creating Eve reveals a creation truth. Women are naturally better at partnering with others to accomplish a task than are men. A woman as a CEO in business or on a leadership team may be contributing her femininity to her business through her strength at building or helping to build 
a team. Fit for him or matching him translates a Hebrew phrase that literally means like opposite to him. Kathy Keller explains the entire narrative of Genesis 2 in which a piece of the man is removed to create the woman strongly implies that each is incomplete without the other. Male and female are like opposite to one another. They are like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they are not exactly alike nor randomly different. But they are differentiated such that together they complete a complex whole. Each sex is gifted for different steps in the same great dance. What a glorious picture. Yet in our Western democracy, when Scripture applies these creation principles to the Christian home and the church, Paul's teaching feels harsh, chauvinistic, and unfair. In Ephesians 5.22, he writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. It's been said that heresy is truth out of balance. Even with the explanation of the creation roots behind these commands, these commands will likely be rejected by many daughters and granddaughters unless they are taught in balance with the other biblical truths that constitute the worldview of Scripture concerning gender. Here are some of those truths. First, all Christians are commanded to be submissive to one another, to deny themselves in some way. Husbands are to deny themselves by laying down their lives for their wives, wives by yielding to their husband's leadership. Second, headship taught by Paul has zero connotation of lording it over others. Headship is modeled by Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Though Jesus was equal with God, he emptied himself of his glory and took on the role of a slave. Jesus shed his divine privilege without becoming any less God, and he took on the most submissive role, that of a servant, putting his view of headship into practice by washing his disciples' feet. Three husbands as heads of their wives are therefore servant leaders. Wives are to be strong helpers. Both make themselves slaves to the other, but in different roles. The example for both is Jesus. Fourth, godly manhood is defined in creation as a man giving himself up to cause those in the garden to flourish, avad, and be protected, shamar. Fifth, women in general are not commanded to be submissive to men in general. Rather, Christian wives who say yes to the husband's promise to love them are choosing to respect his leadership in their home. Sixth, submission does not mean silently accepting a husband's decision when she thinks it's wrong. To the contrary, loyalty to him means telling him when she thinks he's wrong, 
But in the end, trusting God to work through her husband, who is accountable to God and takes responsibility for the final decision. Seventh, in the church, which Paul calls the household of God, the same pattern of love and order is to be followed as the Christian home. Men are to lead. Eighth, the historical setting in which women were told to be silent was the authoritative determination by the synagogue elders of the orthodoxy or heresy of a visiting rabbi's teaching. That authoritative function of serving as an elder was assigned by Paul in the New Testament to men. Women, though, are welcome to use their gifts in any way that a non-ordained man can. Ninth, in the two spheres where men are given leadership, the home and the church, they are accountable to the elders of the church for their behavior. I've tried to quickly review the biblical worldview on gender. So we have a target, what we want our loved ones to grasp. But the best way to help them embrace this view is not to dump this load of truth on them, but to ask them about their views and feelings. Here are some questions that might help generate this kind of interaction. Number one, what message do you hear through the social media about womanhood? Number two, what do you think the Bible teaches about the value of women? Three, what do you believe the Bible teaches about why Eve was created? Four, what do you think the Bible teaches about differences in roles between husbands and wives in marriage? Five, how would you defend from the Bible the truth that women are equal to men? Six, how does it make you feel when you read Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord? Seven, if the Bible's teaching about something as profound as a wife's role in marriage is not relevant to us because Paul was influenced by his culture, how do you know which other parts of the Bible are not true because they were shaped by the culture? Eight, since the Bible says that Jesus submitted to the Father's will, do you believe Jesus, God the Son, is inferior to the Father? Nine, does the submission of a citizen to a police officer mean the citizen is inferior to the police officer? Or the submission of church members to church elders mean they are inferior to the church leaders? If not, why do some people say that a wife submitting to her husband means saying that she is inferior? Number 10, do some of your friends scoff at the biblical view of marriage roles? If so... How does that make you feel? To summarize this episode, our calling as men to help others flourish means helping our daughters and granddaughters build confidence in the way God created them to be female. Gender differences are profoundly related to our sense of identity. But if the biblical worldview is to take root in our daughter's heart, we must replace hostility towards those holding broken worldviews in our culture with compassion for them. The biblical worldview about gender is that God deliberately created man and woman differently so that they could complete one another. Women, having been created to be partners, are better at partnership than are men. 
In marriage, men are to be servant leaders. Wives are to be strong helpers, both following the example of Jesus to serve the other. For further prayerful thought, number one, the best way to teach female loved ones the biblical worldview of gender is by exhibiting godly manhood. What are some places you can improve your commitment to helping others flourish? Number two, what have been the objections you have heard to the biblical worldview of gender? What parts of the biblical picture might they be missing? Next week, in our quest to raise godly, confident daughters and granddaughters in today's world, we will examine the biblical and cultural views of motherhood, observing how both overvaluing motherhood and undervaluing motherhood can harm the females we love. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission to honor Christ with their lives. Thank you.